autistic people with quality of life and opportunity. You're listening to the Autism CRC podcast. This is the Autism at Work speaker series featuring pre-recorded audio captured during the live Autism at Work virtual summit event held in March 2023. Hear from over 40 local and international speakers, panelists and presenters, including neurodivergent employees and employers, as they discuss the important topics affecting autistic people at work. You can also watch this series on the Autism CRC YouTube channel. Hello again. My name is Wojciech Nadochowski, Chief Operating Officer at Autism CRC. And welcome to the next keynote to be delivered by Jessica Caden, Director of People and Communications at SANE Australia. Jess is a people-centric and engaging leader with a passion for guiding for purpose organisations through periods of change and growth. Jessica is a HR leader with an, and an autistic advocate whose drive for inclusion and diversity has seen her pioneer and develop programs across public, nonprofit, and private sectors. She's also a mum of two and an avid reader. Jessica is a certified HR fellow, holds a Master of Human Resource Management and a Bachelor of Arts, majoring in Public Relations and Change Management. Jess is Vice President of the HR Institute of Victoria and a founding member of Hacking HR's Global Experts Council. She's a member of the National Accreditation Committee that oversees HR standards and the accreditation of HR courses in Australia. In 2022, Jessica was a finalist for HR Leader of the Year and in 2023 was named on the Human Resource Directors Hot List. We will try to answer as many questions as possible, but depending on how many come through, we may not be able to get through them all. Okay, that's it from me. Thank you, Jess. I'll hand it over to you. Thank you. Absolutely thrilled to be here today at the Fifth Autism at Work Summit, focusing on building capability. I'd like to thank Autism CRC and sponsors and everyone for making this event possible. Um, events like this make such a huge difference to HR professionals, organisational leaders, autistic people and their supporters. So um, it's fantastic that it happens and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just really, really pleased to be here. Uh, I'm joining everyone today from the lands of the Wondery people of the Kulin Nation. Um, I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and future. Elise Muller did a lovely welcome to country earlier. Thank you. Um, I acknowledge that this land always was, always will be Aboriginal land and I'm grateful to be on it today. So I want to talk to you about two people. Well, it's one person, spoiler alert, it's me, but at two different times. One of them was the me really struggling day to day in the workplace, you know, not meeting targets, barely surviving, being under performance management. And then a second person, uh, also me, but 10 years later, uh, thriving at work, kicking goals, being promoted. And I want to talk to you today about the difference between those two settings and how it is uh, related to inclusive leadership and an inclusive work environment. Uh, there's a quote about a flower. I can't recall it exactly, but it's around if a flower isn't thriving, you don't blame the flower, you look at the environment. 
You know, is the flower getting enough sun? Is the soil right? Is the conditions right? Um, and you look at how you need to adjust the environment to be able to support that flower to grow. And workplaces should be exactly the same. And in this analogy, your organisational leaders, they're the gardeners. They're the ones who, you know, determine what soil type, determine where and what to plant. And so having it, you know, um, organisational leaders who are aware of their responsibility is just absolutely, absolutely essential. Um, Harvard Business Review research found that what leaders say and do makes a 70% difference as to whether an individual reports feeling included. Um, you've heard from many panellists today as well as keynote speakers uh, that all of the autism initiatives, they're not going to, they're not going to succeed unless they're backed up by leaders who are practicing inclusion, who are supporting those initiatives. You know, everyone's talked about the importance of executive buy-in, leadership style, and uh, it's just something which um, is absolutely central to having autism inclusion workplaces, because you can have all the policies, you can have all the employee resource groups, all the strategies, but it's not going to make a difference if your leaders aren't walking the talk. So back to me around, uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago, I started out working in hospitality. Um, I found it very, very challenging. Um, in particular, what I found challenging was about the unclear communication and expectations. So uh, you can picture me at about 15, I think it was maybe my second shift, and I was asked to uh, go and make a fruit platter. And I just, I just froze. I went, make a fruit platter. What does that, what does that mean? Like I could kind of picture the end goal, but the questions in my head were things like, how do you, how do you cut up the banana? You know, do, do you slice strawberries? Do you, do you peel the apple? Um, me in that role, I needed a much higher level of detail about what was expected of me because I had this fear that I was going to do it and I was going to do it wrong and that there were going to be consequences for doing it wrong. And this fear I can see plays out a lot in autism employment and it's something which does derive from the leaders and how they act and how they support their employees. Um, after that, a bit about my background, I, uh, after I finished high school, I commenced university. Um, I failed my first go at getting a university degree. I struggled to attend classes, complete assignments, um, experienced autistic inertia, executive functioning challenges, uh, and there was a lot of a lack of routine and, again, unclear expectations, which were just barriers that I couldn't overcome. Um, going into the workplace, my first full-time job I was actually terminated at the three-month mark um, during probation because I hadn't met expectations. Um, I didn't understand. I didn't understand why. So within that workplace, there was no operational clarity. Um, when I asked questions, and boy, did I ask a lot of questions, I was met with frustration. I was left utterly confused as to what was expected of me. I had a strong sense that, you know, I was doing something wrong, but I didn't know what it was or what I should be doing differently. It felt very much like the organisation had a particular mould and they were wanted to push me into that mould um, and I just, I didn't fit. You know, I, I was branded as, as difficult, you know, challenging, not the right fit for the organisation. Um, 
things which would, uh, you know, uh, pull me up were my manager would say things like, when you have some downtime, can you clean up the filing room? And I would go, oh, well, it's a very busy role. I'm not sure I'm ever going to get any downtime. Um, and I didn't get any downtime. So the filing room never got done. Whereas what my manager actually meant was it's not a priority right now for this week, but I expect you to find time over the next three months to be able to clean up the filing room. But I didn't understand that that was what was meant. And I didn't have the I didn't have the words and I didn't have the capacity and capability to self-advocate at that point in my life to be able to say, hey, hold up. Um, you know, th th this isn't working for me. I'm I'm a highly capable worker. Um, I have a lot to offer, but there's just some things which are providing a barrier for me. Um, at that point in time, that was really, really hard. For those of you on the call who have gone through, you know, a similar experience of performance management or uh, termination or not being successful at something, then you know the period that comes after. And that period can be really challenging. And in this instance, um, I decided to uh, uh, hyper-focus, hyper-fixate on what had gone wrong. So I studied organisational behaviour and I studied communications and I ended up with a bachelor's degree of arts focusing on those areas. Um, I then chose a very structured employment pathway, uh, re-entering the workforce through joining the Victorian Public Service Graduate Program, which was a highly structured program existing within highly structured organisations. Um, I also hyper-focused on dealing with change and uncertainty. That had been something which had been really challenging for me. And I then turned it into a career path. So you, it's not uncommon to have autistic people where if they are experiencing a challenge, they then may go into a period of hyper-focus of researching about it, understanding it, and then turning it into an area of strength. Um, so that's what I did. My, my areas of strength now are my communication skills, my ability to build relationships, and my ability to manage change and uncertainty. And that's been a common thread throughout my career has been supporting organisations and people through change and through disruption. So you can jump forward quite a few years. Um, as, as you heard at the start, I always get a little embarrassed when people, you know, talk about, um, uh, you, you know, read out the bio. Um, but by any measure, you know, I, I have been able to achieve a level of success at work and I've certainly been able to find a very, very um, fulfilling career path. Um, now, there were things that I did in that I studied areas which, are, you know, proved to be a challenge for me, but most of the change between those two scenarios, it, it wasn't anything that I did. This, my story is not a story of me overcoming challenges. It is a story of me going from a, a workplace environment which wasn't inclusive, which wasn't supportive, and then compared to me being in a workplace environment, which was, which brought out the best in me, which allowed me to go from surviving to thriving. I'm going to talk a little bit about those workplaces. Um, the most recent ones were Amaze, um, which is a autism organisation based in Victoria. 
and then also SANE, my current organisation. So what was different within these organisations was the leadership that was provided and the level of inclusivity. So what did that look like? What was different? Um, it was okay for me to be myself. It was okay for me to ask for adjustments at work. It was okay for me to express my needs and it was okay for me to ask questions. It is amazing the difference. Just let autistic people ask questions. Um, it is going to make a huge difference to them being able to uh, be supported and get the answers that they need. Um, yet it's something which many organisations strongly discourage. So at Amazer, um, when I joined them, I was their first executive HR role and there were only a couple of autistic employees. But by the time I left, this number had grown to almost half of the workforce. There was commitment because of who they were, um, an autism organisation, to understand autistic employees. But most importantly, there were CEOs, Fiona Sharkey and then Jim Mullen, who actively practised inclusive leadership. They asked me how I worked best. Um, they sought to understand, uh, you know, what kind of environments and situations I would thrive in. And that might look like asking me, you know, uh, do I prefer to have a one-on-one -on -one in person? Do we do things via email? What kind of, um, you know, instructions and directions do I need to then be able to take with it and run with it? The executives and staff, I also worked along, acknowledged both my strengths and my challenges. So in the uh, people and culture panel, which was um, a couple of hours ago, there was a conversation about how organisations are very willing to accept, you know, autistic strengths. And we talk about the uh, autistic advantage, um, but are often not as open to supporting some of the challenges. And when challenges can arrive, HR teams can adopt approach of, you know, looking to, looking to end the employment relationship. So what worked really well for me at Amaze was that understanding that there were challenges that I experienced and supporting me with that. So a, a practical example of that um, and one which really stuck with me because I hadn't been at the organisation for long but we'd all been operating in lockdown in a virtual environment. And then we had our first day back in the office and we had an executive meeting and it was in person. And I found it really overwhelming all of a sudden being in the room with people. And I really struggled to be able to figure out how do I speak up? How do I not interrupt people? When is the time for me to contribute? And I kind of sat there and I felt I started like, I started feeling pretty anxious. I started feeling pretty nervous. And then I just reminded myself and went, no, my colleagues will support me. Um, they understand the challenges and accept the challenges along with the strength. And it's okay for me to speak up. Um, and so what I did is I, I kind of, I put my hand up, um, which was a little bit awkward, but I did it anyway. And I just said, hey, I'm really struggling to communicate. In this meeting, I'm feeling overwhelmed by being in person um, and it's meaning that I'm I'm not able to, you know, communicate and speak up in the way that, that would um, allow me to engage in the conversation. 
And my colleagues around the table were instantly supportive. Um, the chair of the meeting, who was the CEO, uh, made a note to explicitly create space for me to contribute in that meeting. Um, so to deliberately say, uh, uh, Jessica, do you have anything to add to that? Or do you have anything that you'd like to raise to be able to give me an explicit way of joining the conversation? And that was something which was, was really helpful. Um, other things that were helpful was uh, if I if we were going out for lunch and I might ask, hey, where are we going? Because I'd like to look at where it is, uh, look at the menu, get a copy in advance as well. Then it was all really, really supportive. And um, one of, you know, the things that I'm most, most proud of was the work that I was able to do at Amaze to make it an organisation that was inclusive, but it was only able to happen because we had CEOs and executives who were committed to doing that and who, who actually lived it, who when they were presented a choice in their day-to-day -day work, they chose to operate in an inclusive way. I now work at SANE. Uh, SANE is an organisation that provides free mental health support services, including those specifically designed for autistic people. Um, SANE employs neurodivergent staff, and they provide counselling, peer work and online communities for autistic people experiencing mental health challenges. My role at SANE is um, I'm one of three executives. I have a fairly uh, large portfolio area, which includes people and culture, but also communications and marketing, media, and then a uh, sub-entity, which is part art gallery and part education organisation. And again, the difference at SANE is in Rachel Green as our CEO is a inclusive leader, is a inclusive manager. You know, that looks like uh, participating in Autism Acceptance Day events like Hoodie Up. It means asking me how I, um, I want to be best managed and in modelling that across the organisation. There's a few things that inclusive leaders do. One is that visible commitment that Tom spoke about earlier and which has been discussed on other panels about leaders really visibly, um, you know, adopting an approach and saying this is the workplace that we want to be. We want to be an environment where everyone feels like they can be themselves and where they're supported to thrive in whatever that looks like for them. Inclusive leaders also have an awareness of their own biases um, and this can mean recognising that there are many ways of doing things. So historically, managers and leaders have often adopted a more authoritarian approach to leadership. Um, and that doesn't, that doesn't work in modern day workplaces. The old my way is the right way is not something which is supportive of all employees because there are many, many different ways of doing things and there's no right or wrong way to do things. What organisations need to do is focus on the outcome and then leave it up to the employee to figure out the way which is going to work for them. Humility is another factor that inclusive leaders have and this is something which Tom uh, earlier in the keynote demonstrated having himself when he spoke about the challenges that he faced as being a leader and recognising the need to ad adapt his own leadership approach and change it. So humility to learn to lead differently is really important in leaders as well. 
Um, and then the last one, which I think is critical, is that curiosity. Um, and the curiosity, whether it's working with an employee resource group, whether it's working with direct reports and staff to go, help me understand what the experience is in the workplace. You know, help me understand what some of the challenges are. What does that feel like for you? And how can the organisation change to be more inclusive? The best leaders I've worked with have had this curiosity and this genuine curiosity combined with the humility, uh, you know, visible commitment and that awareness of bias is what allows organisational leaders to change an organisation so that it goes from being a place where people, you know, feel like they have to fit into a certain, a certain way of doing things, a certain way of being things into an organisation where people don't have to worry about that. Because the benefits of an inclusive workplace means that uh, I can I can focus 100% of my energy on what can I do for the business? How can I be more effective in my role? You know, what, what's our two-year, five-year strategy? How can I support my team? Because when I'm not in an inclusive environment, instead 80% of my effort goes towards things like oh my God, what am I going to say? I don't understand what is expected of me. How do I speak up in this situation? I'm feeling scared. I'm feeling anxious. I don't know what to do. And that then takes 80% of my energy. And then I've only got 20% of my energy left for work. So by building an inclusive you know, environment through inclusive leadership, you end up with employees who are spending you know, 100% of their their energy and their effort on the work rather than trying to navigate, you know, uh, systems and processes which weren't built for them. So I'm now in a leadership position myself. Um, I've spoken a bit about my experience as an employee and my experience of different leadership styles and in particular how I've benefited from inclusive uh, leadership approaches but I'm now going to talk a little bit about what I do differently as a leader now that I'm in a leadership position. Um, before I do this, I want to really openly acknowledge that I'm coming at this from a position of privilege. Um, I have sufficient privilege in my life at the moment where it is safe for me to be an autistic advocate. Um, that wasn't the case 10 years ago when I was in a much more junior position within an organisation, and that's not the case for every autistic person. Um, yes, I'm a woman with disability, but in all other areas, I experience privilege. I'm part of the dominant culture in Australia. Um, I am, you know, middle class. I had every opportunity provided around education. I had a stable home growing up. Um, and all of those things have meant that that I reached a point, you know, about four or five years ago where it had become sufficiently safe enough that I had, you know, gained enough career wins, that I'd won enough awards, that I'd reached a certain level where I felt that it was safe for me to, um, you know, change and start being a advocate. Um, but it is I can only be open about my identity and my needs in the workplace because I do 
do so from a position of power within the organisations that I work in. And I want to recognise that that's um, that that's not a position that everyone is going to be in. Um, even if you are in a senior position within your organisation, um, you may still not feel that it's so that it's sufficiently safe for you to be able to be an advocate and to be able to speak up. But because I am in that position, um, it is important that it's important to me personally that I use that. So that means that for me, it means modelling to my team. You know, in my current workplace, my CEO, Rachel Green, my executive colleagues and all of my staff um, that I manage, they, they've known from day one that I'm autistic and I speak openly with them about what that means to me. It means at times uh, uh, showing a level of vulnerability, um, which doesn't come naturally because it can feel, you know, challenging putting yourself out there. But what I've found is that when I show vulnerability, when I show myself as a human being who perhaps needs some adjustments at work, then it means that my colleagues and my team members and people in the organisation, they feel that they can as well. So I don't try and hide it. And that might look like me saying, you know, hey, I'm struggling a bit today with auditory processing. Do you mind if, um, you know, we, we pick this up tomorrow or communicate via email? It might mean me wearing my noise cancelling headphones around the office. Um, it might mean me saying, I'm sorry, I need to ask about 10 questions so that I can fully understand this issue and that being okay. And I've seen then staff in my branches, they are more likely to be, able, whether they're autistic or whether they're not autistic, they're more likely to come to me and say, hey, I'm having trouble with this, I need some adjustments. Um, because they know that it is that it's okay that we we are not expecting you know our staff to be cogs in a machine. Um, it, it is okay for employees to have needs, and it's okay for employees to say, "I work best," um, you know, via face to face meetings, or "I work best when I have time to prepare and consider a topic and bring my viewpoint along." Um, and that's another thing that I do as a leader myself is I talk to every single employee about how they prefer to work, how they prefer to operate, what is going to bring the best out of them. I see my role as a gardener, um, to go back to the flower analogy, in that my role, my explicit role as a leader is to support our staff to grow you know, to thrive. And that means, you know, understanding what their needs and preferences are about how much sunlight they have, how much rain they need. And it can take some time to get to know that about people, but it is worth the effort in creating an environment where they can then, you know, uh, put 100% of their effort towards the organisation. And you can just see people do amazing, amazing things. Um, to go back to my own personal example, you know, the, the difference of a workplace is the difference between me being someone who is performance managed versus me being someone who is, you know, um, in, in line for national awards. That's the impact that your inclusive leadership can have.
Now, I know we've got lots of uh, different types of people um, on, on this session today. So I've kind of got some key takeaways, but I wanted to break it down by different, different groups and then we'll have an opportunity for questions. Um, my key takeaway for leaders, um, any organisational leaders who are here, is to consciously practice inclusive leadership. So recognise your own biases, uh, uh, model workplace adjustments, show curiosity, ask your staff what's working, what's not working, whether that be through employee resource groups, whether it be through, you know, a regular engagement survey, um, find out what your staff need and then build commitment to deliver on that to support them. For any HR practitioners on the call, you can do a few things. One, you can support your leaders um, to be inclusive. Um, and there are ways that you can do that, even things like running them through unconscious bias training um, can, can make a big difference. And you can also tie it to the results of some of those surveys. So if you've got an engagement survey that measures, you know, the inclusivity of the work environment, put a KPI to your executives. Um, at saying 88% of staff in our last survey said that they feel entirely safe to be their authentic selves at work. Now, I'd love to see that get to 100, but by measuring it, by reporting on it, and by building it into, you know, executive KPIs, you can encourage leaders to be more inclusive. Um, as HR practitioners, you can also be more inclusive yourself. You might not have, you know, manager or director in your title, but all HR practitioners are leaders within the organisation by virtue of the wide-ranging impact of their work. For those who, you know, are not organisational leaders or not in HR, I want to tell you that you, um, you don't have to have a formal title to be a leader. Um, if you do feel you know, safe to be out there in the workplace, if it is a supportive environment, then speaking up, modelling what that looks like is going to help break stereotypes, bust some of those myths and, uh, and, and build awareness of all the people that you work on, on what it means to, uh, to be autistic in a workplace and what inclusivity means to you. And uh, for, you know, any autistic people or their supporters on the call today, I want to tell you that you, you deserve a workplace that is inclusive. Not all workplaces are, not all leaders are. I hope that changes. But an inclusive workplace should be a non-negotiable for you. Um, if you're in a workplace which isn't going to make adjustments, which isn't going to support you to be who you are, then it's potentially going to be more harmful for good than good. So you want to you want to look for leaders who ask questions of how can I best manage you? What can we do to support? You want to look for organisations that um, at, at least have a visible commitment around employing people who are neurodivergent, um, who might have some strategies in place or even just broadly about disability employment. Um, and you want to find managers. You want to find managers who are going to work to help you shine at work. Um, not, and you just need to, you need to stay away from leaders who are going to try and diminish you 
or make you um, make you conform. And that's not something everyone has a choice of. You know, we, we do need to pay the bills and sometimes you may be in a role where that's not what's happening. Um, but definitely I want you to know that you do deserve an inclusive workplace. You deserve an inclusive manager and um, to, to keep to keep looking to have that um, because it will make such a huge difference to, to your own career path, your own employment, but also just how you feel about yourself as a person. Um, now, at, at the start when I was introduced, it was mentioned that I've got two children. Um, I've got a three-year-old and I've got a six-year-old. And what I want in the future is I'm really hoping that, you know, in, in 20 years' time when they enter the workforce, that there work that there are lots of workplaces and lots of leaders who are inclusive, so they've got choice. You know, I hope they're not in the position where we might be today where you've got to pick and choose which organisation you work on um, because every organisation should be like that. And uh, before we go to, you know, questions, I just want to say thank you to everyone for being here, for listening, because uh, you're here because you want to, you, you share that vision with me and you want to be able to create that as a reality. Um, so thank you and, and thank you for having me and now very open for uh, any any questions. Thanks so much, Jess. That's uh, really a fantastic presentation. I love the analogy of the garden and um, and uh, and the need for people to be able to thrive at work. We spend so much time at work. And it is really important for us to be able to thrive there in order so that we can just thrive generally. Um, there's lots of questions coming through and some and some really good ones. Um, here is one that it really comes on the question about leadership. Um, and you've spent a bit of time talking about leadership. So the question goes, how can leaders hold the rest of the workforce to account for their biases and discriminatory behaviour, overt and covert, which invariably arise when autistic people disclose and seek the accommodations they need. That's a bit of a big question. Sorry to start with a, with a big one. No, it, um, it, it's a big question, but it's almost the uh, end all, be all end all of questions. Um, yeah. So there are several things that leaders can do. One is uh, by putting things in place to make it safe for employees to disclose. So um, train all of your staff. Um, uh, there are lots of, uh, you know, training packages out there. I'll, I'll do a plug for Amaze again. They've got a fantastic What is Autism eLearn, which can be deployed within organisations to all staff. Um, and within that eLearn is a section on what do you do when someone discloses? So it's making sure that all your managers, all of your staff know what to do when someone discloses, knows how to respond in a way which is safely and supportive. So people don't get responses like, ah, oh, but you don't look autistic. Um, and many of the other things which autistic people have experienced. So um, train your staff. Um, secondly, you can survey your staff. 
So leaders often, as you get higher and higher up in the organisation, you can lose touch with what is happening on the ground level. So having effective mechanisms like surveys and employee resource groups can help tell you, um, is this vision you're articulating of an inclusive organisation, is it actually happening or is it breaking down somewhere in the process? Another thing that is really important is having a complaints or grievance process, which is known by staff and which is accessible by staff. So that if a staff member does feel like they're being treated in a way which might be, you know, discrimination, whether it's, you know, avert or not, um, that there's a pathway that they have to be able to raise their concern in a confidential manner. Um, you then need to make sure that when staff do that, that it's taken seriously. Um, and that might mean, you know, whether it's a, a uh, you know, all staff email to managers, whether it's a, you know, training or if it's putting KPIs, but to have a zero tolerance for discrimination. And that means training your managers in what that looks like, what that means, and having your HR teams prepared to respond for um for, for when that doesn't happen. You know, an organisation has to follow through. If you say that you're going to be a supportive organisation for autistic employees, then you have to follow through on that. And that means if you receive a complaint that a manager's not doing that, you need to respond to that. And yes, you'll be sensitive about it and it might involve, you know, providing training to a manager, but autistic employees need to know that the organisation's going to be held accountable for doing what it says it's going to. And that's something which leaders can build in through, you know, KPIs for staff, performance planning, training for managers. There's a whole lot of ways um, beyond what I've spoken about with doing that, um, but they're, they're some of the key, key areas that a leader can do. I thought I was being a little bit unfair by leading with that question and you answered it with in incredible detail and, and aplomb. Well done, thank you. <laughs> Um, okay, so another question. What can workplaces do to help support neurodivergent staff to self-advocate for themselves? Yep, so I'll start off by saying that organisations should not solely rely on employees self-advocating. Um, it's fantastic when people can self-advocate, but it's not an option for everyone whether that's due to their own, uh, you know, personal capability and capacity around it or because it's not safe for them to do it. So if organisations are going to be encouraging staff to self-advocate, then I would expect them to also back it up by providing training to staff and, you know, a policy and, you know, visible commitment that when people advocate that they will be listened to. Um, organisations can encourage people to self-advocate, though, through doing things like what I spoke about earlier, you know, asking how do you work best? You know, what support can we provide? Um, how can we adjust our ways of working to make it, to make things easier for you, just that little bit easier? Um, and then the other thing, which would be the next level up, is if you do have employee resource groups, you could consider expanding them into some peer-to-peer -peer support groups if you're a larger organisation so that autistic employees can perhaps speak to other autistic employees. So, um, you know, within SANE, it's not uncommon that 
you know, you might have, we've got a mix of staff who are kind of uh, out there and proud. And then we've got other staff who might go, look, I've just had a recent diagnosis. I'm not quite sure what to do now, how to advocate. And so they can actually go to their peers who have been in that position before and seek some advice and guidance as well. So those peer-to-peer relationships can be um, can be really helpful in a workplace setting. Yeah, thank you. And um, for everybody, that we are going to have a session in tomorrow at 3.45 um, on this topic, self-advocacy at work and an initiative from the Autism CRC. So um, if you're interested in that uh, topic, um, definitely join us for that tomorrow. Um, lots of comments are coming through, by the way, uh, uh, Jess, lots of very positive comments. People are really loving the presentation. People saying beautiful, articulate, inspirational. Thank you very much. So that's terrific to hear. Um, but there's also some more questions. <laughs> um, so someone says, do you have any advice for new starters around disclosing and effective approaches to discussing neurodiversity with managers slash HR department? Yeah. Disclosure is a really, really tough issue. And I would never give blanket advice to, you know, anyone to disclose or not to disclose. It's a very personal decision to make. There are um, two things that I would suggest doing in the first instance. Um, one is a sussing out how supportive the organisation is likely to be. So that might involve saying, hey, Autism Acceptance Day is coming up soon. Uh, are we going to be doing anything to, you know, support that? And you can generally get a sense from how the manager responds to that question of how receptive they're going to be to you sharing your own identity and seeking support as well. Um, so you can ask questions to be able to get a sense of how supportive it might be. The other thing you can do is if you're not sure if it's safe to disclose everything, you can go with a bit of a soft disclosure. So this is something which I did for many years and that I didn't walk around the workplace saying, um, you know, I'm autistic, I need X. But I would say um, things like, hey, uh, when I'm trying to concentrate on a task, I prefer to have noise cancelling headphones in and not have people interrupt me. Um, if you can see that I'm focused on a, on a task, just maybe send me an email and then I'll come and, you know, catch up with you when, when I'm done. So there are, there are a lot of ways to advocate for your own needs in the workplace, which aren't necessarily a full disclosure um, if you don't feel it's safe to do so. If you do feel it is you know, safe to do it. If you've perhaps, you know, uh, requested some soft disclosure adjustments already, if your manager has said, hey, yeah, let, let, let's do a hoodie up event in April, that would be fantastic. And you feel that it's a good environment to disclose, uh, then, um, you know, what you might want to do is like start off with, hey, um, how, how do you know about autism? There's some things that I'd like to talk to you about from my own personal experience. Can we have a conversation about this? Um, and you might want to share it. You do want to prepare yourself for it um, without generalising. Many people who are autistic can be oversharers. 
And it can often be quite an emotional thing when you're disclosing in the workplace. So you want to go into that conversation with some clear boundaries for yourself about how much you're going to share and what not you're going to share and what you might do in the conversation if you are feeling a bit overwhelmed and you need to take a pause and take a break. Now, I've entirely forgotten what the original question was. It was something about <laughs> disclosing in the workplace. Have I got it partially right at least? <laughs> <laughs> you've, done a, you've done an excellent job um, of uh, approaching um, um, neurodiversity with, with, with managers and HR. You've done an excellent job at answering that question. Um, no one will ever accuse me of not being thorough. <laughs> uh, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm extremely impressed by the by the clarity and the detail of each of your answers. Um, okay, so I've, I've still got some more questions for you. They keep they keep coming through. Um, so we'll have you just for a little bit longer, if that's okay. Um, so, how do you deal with a manager who gives you what you need? but with either direct or indirect mannerisms that say they don't want to. So in a way, this manager is actively discouraging. Yeah, I'm just unpacking that one in my head a little bit. Yeah, it's a tough one, isn't it? <laughs> There's a yeah. So one thing working with neurotypical people is that they often don't say what they mean, um, which mm -hmm. can be, you know, very challenging um, for, for uh, autistic people um, to work with because they might say, oh, sure, I'm happy to help you with that. But their facial expression and their body language is actually saying, I don't want to do that and I don't think you should need that, but I guess I will have to um, instead. So it can be really challenging to be able to bring those indirect communication into direct communication um, and practice can help. So I might say in that situation, um, I want to check if it's a good time for us to, you know, go do that now. And I also want to check that you see the value in it. Um, and I, I will often say to people, you know, it's really important to me that I complete a task or a project to a high standard for me to be able to complete it to a high standard I need to uh, understand what success looks like um, and what some of the parameters are because then I will go away and then I will absolutely deliver on it but I need that information first um, I'm just linking back to the question because it's almost mm -hmm. a question of how do you deal with passive aggressive managers yeah. um, and uh, it, it, it's hard because when you're an employee, you know, you, your manager is the one in charge. And so you often don't have a whole lot of influence over changing their communication style. So all you can really do is kind of translate it, you know, yourself. And that might look like, you know, your words are telling me that you're happy to help with this. Your body language is telling me that um, perhaps now's not the best time. Am I reading that right? Mm. Um because you might be reading it right, you might not be reading it right, or you might be reading that there's, um, you know, there's something going on, but perhaps it's not the thing that you think it is. So I find it really helpful for me personally when I just verbalise what I've observed and, um, and kind of ask, is that right? Is that, you know, the sense that I'm getting or am I completely off? 
off field here. Yeah, great answer. Um, another great answer. Um, I think we've got time for, for one more. Okay, so as someone says, I, I think we should push for a new law um, uh, that neurodivergent people have equal rights. What do you say? I, <laughs> and the person says, I think that's how neurotypicals will learn. Yeah, so I would say that by the time in a workplace you start looking up what the laws are, if you start approaching things from a legal framework, then it's already too far gone. You know, the law is always going to lag behind society's expectations. Um, it is always going to be a bare minimum compliance. And I think that we are unlikely to see any laws change around this until society as a whole has changed because that, that's just been my observation of how the legal system legal system works. If you have to force someone to do it, then it's not true inclusivity. Yeah, definitely. Um, look, I think I think that's it for the questions. I'm just going to uh, just reiterate what I've said um, and other people have been saying. You know, this really was a, a quite an inspirational presentation. Um, you know, very articulate, very powerful. Uh, it's it's just been wonderful to uh, to hear you just be able to speak so precisely and answer these questions um, in such detail. Um, it really is marvellous just to sit here and, and, and listen. So so thank you so much. Uh, you've been very generous with your time and being very generous with your reflections. Um, so uh, that brings us almost to the end of this session. Uh, next, we have a short break, um, giving you some time to stretch, grab a tea or coffee. And then our uh, next session is a panel focused on how employer resource, resource groups uh, known and as ERGs are providing support to advance neurodiversity in the workplace. To get there, please just click back to the homepage or the agenda page. You'll see the session listed there as starting soon. When you're ready, click on the link and it will take you into the next session. We'll see you there. Thanks so much, Jess. The 2023 Autism at Work Virtual Summit was proudly sponsored by DXC Technologies, GHT Engineering, La Trobe University, Untapped Group, ANZ, and SAP. Autism CRC is the independent national source of evidence for best practice. For more information on Autism CRC or the Autism at Work Virtual Summit, head to our website, autismcrc.com.au.